Today on Golazzo, we journey back to the early 80s and the story of a Roma side who touched the sky and paid the price, and probably the referee too. The side that put the giallo in giallorossi in this Golazzo. It's the summer of 1982. James Horncastle is just back from the nursery, right? No, I'm I'm still a tadpole. Are you not even in 1982? No. Christ on a bite. Yeah, Gab, you're still in Frankfurt, are you? I am, yes. All right, lovely. The Italian national side are back from the World Cup, as we mentioned on the recent Golad, so they are world champions and they're about to they see... They all play for Juventus. <laughs> they all play for Juventus. Serie A, for all Juve's might... Might which had been increased over the summer by the additions of... Zibi Boniek and Michel Platini. Right. Serie was about to see some unlikely winners of their own, a Roma side. It's interesting when you look back at that, that season, following the World Cup and the boom, the enthusiasm around Calcio, the lineup on the starting grid for, for Serie You have Trapattoni's Juve, who've basically won every single title going for, for the last five years. You've got Inter, who are... Massive. And then even the newly promoted sides, Pisa not so much, but Verona, who within a season or two are going to become title contenders, and Sampdoria, who get promoted that season, 82-83. And what a side they'd put together. Yeah, I mean, they signed Trevor Francis, Liam Brady, who had to make way for Platini at uh, Juventus. Right. They've got Bobby Mancini. 18-year-old Roberto Mancini. The incredible thing, James, is that everyone looks at Juventus and on paper they're the strongest team that has ever been, you know, particularly in the in the warm glow of, of winning the World Cup. It also won the Serie A title the two previous years as well. Mm. And this Samp side that comes up beats them on yeah. the opening day of the season. This Samp side beats them. The following week they beat Inter with a brace from Trevor Francis. And then who do they beat in the third week? Roma. Roma. Yeah, incredible start by Sampdoria, but it, it's Roma we're here to talk about. And that Roma team, now, only a few years before, they'd been taken over by Dino Viola, and his impact had been pretty immediate in terms of making them a, a struggling club into real contenders. And this is the thing, James, because two years before the title win, Roma are contending for the Scudetto with Juventus, and what, third game? Before the end of the season, Juventus and Roma play in Turin. It's a top of the table clash. There's a point between them. If Roma win it, they leapfrog them. They maybe win the, the league for the first time since 42. It's nil-nil. And what happens towards the end? Bruno Conti puts in a cross. There's uh, Ramon Turone. Gets on the end of it. It looks like a legit goal, but the whistle blows. And who's blowing the whistle? Paolo Bergamo who I think, did we talk about in the Calciopoli scandal? Anyway, might. we'll flash yeah. forward to that again at a later date. We'll, we'll talk about him in, in one this. One of the two heads of referees in the right. Calciopoli scandal. A man who, whose name is also linked to the Dundee United affair. Mm. But we'll come on to that later on. Yes, the Turone goal, which to this day is still one of the most talked about incidents in Roma's long battle with the the clubs up north, the winds from the north. Gian-Piero Boniperti, the president of Juventus, um, obviously hears, listens to all the noise that Roma make about this, particularly Dino Viola afterwards. And Viola, a few days later, receives a package from Turin. It's from Boniperti, and inside there is a ruler with which he can measure the offside because he's been banging on about it. Savage. So Roma have already managed to establish themselves as credible rivals to Juve. They've also picked up trophies pretty much every season, not the Scudetto, but Coppa Italias and, and the like. And by 82-83, Dino Viola has managed to, while battling Juve, put together one of the great Giallorossi sides, starting with the manager. Yeah, Niels Lidholm, who is one of those sort of fascinating characters you get popping up in Italy, you know, and not just in Italy, but elsewhere, you know, those guys who move to a country as players. And then they just kind of never leave. And they sort of half maintain their own culture and background and then half adopt that of their adopted country. Now, Niels Liedholm had come to Italy, I believe, in the early 50s or late 40s and played for this incredible Milan side who won the title twice. Grenoli, no? The Grenoli side, which comes from, it was Gunnar Gren, uh, Gunnar Nordahl, who 
is the second highest goal scorer in the history of Serie A. And, you know, after Slatan, of course, the greatest ever Swedish player. And Niels Liedholm, who was sort of the, the I guess, sort of the, the creative mind uh, in, in, in the midfield. And uh, well, He never misplaced a pass until one time. And when he did, Sanzira hadn't seen it happen in so long that legend has it that they all stood up and applauded. And he was sort of, by the standards of time football back then, he was sort of very calm, very laid back, um, you know, always kind of spoke slowly and carefully. And it was exactly what Roma needed because they, they found him to be sort of this, this this odd foreign guy. And, you know, by this stage, he would have been in his in his 60s, I, mm. I, I would assume. The Baron, they the, called him. Yeah. yeah. The weird thing about him as well was that I mean, he'd been a part of that great Milan lineup. And as a manager in this period, he was kind of commuting between Rome and Milan, doing one season with the Giallorossi and then back with the Rossoneri and then back to the Giallorossi again. Yeah, I mean, he was famous for kind of uh, launching young players as well. I think uh, Milan, he was the guy who gave Franco Baresi his, his debut. He was in charge of Milan when they won the Scudetto della Stella. And that was a big vindication for him because at that point, people just thought of him as this, this guy who would come in. He was good at kind of low to mid-ranking clubs and good for launching young players, but never won anything. Also because Liedholm played a style of football that was, I'd say, unusual in Italy that he was a big advocate for zonal marking passing football and that sort of thing and uh, in terms of temperament and style of management Gab will probably know more about this than, than I do because he spent more time with him but Carlo Ancelotti who would obviously play on the lead home has a lot of lead homes character traits in terms of how man manages manages certain situations I think there's a lot of I remember the first big interview I did as a journalist when I came back to England was to do Ancelotti at Chelsea and I remember he took particular enjoyment out of talking about Nils Liedholm it's yeah it, it, it is funny that sort of the two big influences on Ancelotti's career as a manager are the two polar opposites Nils Liedholm and uh and Eddie Gosaki. In, in terms of of man management style because, you know, I sort of lay back. I'm everybody's friend. I want to make sure everybody likes me. I'll, I'll always kind of, you know, stay calm. And and then players really respond to that. And, you know, you were talking about this this great team that they put together. Ancelotti, he'd come up at, uh, at Parma. He'd moved to Roma. And he had sort of next superstar painted all over him. And he would have been part of the Italy team that won the 82 World Cup, no question about it, if not for his bad knees. He returned, I think, in, in October. Um, yeah, he misses uh, the first seven games or yeah. something. And immediately that has an effect on a team. But to give an idea, when you ask Ancelotti about it, he also minimizes. It's like, yeah, I think I doubtly had an effect. But the fact that I was playing with Paolo Roberto Falcao so also th- made things midfield. a lot easier. So let's just have a... Sorry, James. Well, there's a story which kind of links all this together, uh-huh. which is... Ancelotti's knee blowouts happen in games where Roma, La Magica score two of the best goals I think you will ever see. So there's one the season before they win the league title. They're playing Fiorentina at the Olimpico. And this ball comes in and you see Paolo Roberto Falcao back heel volley for Roberto Puzzo to head in. And then the year where they are champions and they're defending their title, they play against Juve at the Comunale. And you see the ball never hits the floor, and the final touch is Puzzo's bicycle kick, and he dedicates the goal to Ancelotti, whose knee had blown out again in that game. And, you know, both of those goals, I sort of, I would say, would encapsulate some of the skill, some of the ability in this Roma side. Falcao's arrival, meanwhile, had seen one of the great Italian playmakers move back into a kind of more of a defensive role, Agostino Di Bartolomei, who has perhaps the biggest role of anyone in this team. I would say the most influential captain, arguably of all time. I mean, Totti has his own claim to that, but Di Bartolomei, again, every Roma side that won the league title had uh, captain or a leading figure in it from the city. Um, and and also the one from the 1942 team was? Amade Amade. There you go. But you talk about lead home basically taking this guy who was a sort of deep lying midfield playmaker, had a great range of passing, um, had this uh, sassata, you know, this sort of really talk about powerful shots. We talked about Adriano last week. Um, Di Bartolome was, that was one of his key attributes as well. But he goes and plays at the back, and again, it's all about this kind of passing football that Leadholm wants to start. 
And Lidom surrounds him with, he says he's got the quickest defence in Italy because you need one when you've got Di Bartolomeo back there. Di really, really ponderously slow. <laughs> <laughs> but he signs uh, the Tsar, Pietro Virkiwad. Um Virkiwad, I think, along with Mancini and someone else, one of like a handful of players to have won the league with two clubs that are not Juventus, Inter or Milan. He right. would win it with Juventus later on, Virkiwad, but... That's by the way. Maldera as well. For, uh, and Sabino Nella. Yeah. Um, yeah, super quick fullbacks. Also, also, and you've got the keeper, Tancredi, but not that Tancredi. <laughs> All these great names playing in that splendid floppy collared Barilla shirt. And of course, legendary names there. Conte, we briefly touched on, who'd had that incredible World Cup, but the, the man who's, whose image is really forever stamped on this side, not just this season, but also the subsequent one. And then for events that come later is Ago, Agostino Di Bartolome. The season begins with the two promoted sides flying out the blocks. We talked about Sampdoria, Verona were as well. What do you remember that, of that uh, of that campionato? Well, in addition, as, as you say, when we first started seeing like how good Verona could be and, and Sampdoria with the youngsters, and also the fact that Turone, who you mentioned, who had been sort of the symbol of Roma getting screwed out of titles in the mind of Roma fans, he was sold in, uh, back then you had an extra transfer window, I think in, in October. And in some ways getting rid of him was kind of like getting rid of, a bunch of people in football are very superstitious of exercising your your, your your bad luck charm. But the other interesting thing, just which I thought just sort of serves as a reminder of, you know, how kind of the Overton window has shifted and we sort of take it for granted that teams go and win titles with 80, 90 points, you know, not just in Italy. Um, it was remarkable about that. Roma won the title that, that season, and, and I'd forgotten this. I'm looking at this now. It was a 30-game season, and if it had been three points for a win, as it is now, and admittedly it is a shorter season, they would have had 59 points from 30 games if it had been three points. So that, that's less than two points a game. Today you have teams that get two points a game that finish sixth, and it's pretty routine. To me, that's absolutely incredible how... We've lost that. We're so used to now sort of dominating teams, going out there and and blowing everybody away. And, I th- and to me, that's kind of food for thought. The other interesting thing is that season, Roma, um, they won 13 of 15 games at home. Away from home, they won three of 15 games. <laughs> really? They, they, they drew two-thirds of their games away from home. But that was the idea. It's like win your home games, draw away from home, and you'll be fine. Uh, and that's completely, completely gone out the window in but today's football. Also, you talk about home advantage, let's say. In this season, you've got to talk about the Commandos Ultras Curva Sud now. The, the Cooks, who the choreographies that they put on, the atmosphere that they created. I think it was maybe the year after where they did that massive Ti Amo. I love you kind of choreography. Just amazing to see the Olympico. Particularly, there was a game towards the end of the season where they play against Juve. Falcao puts them in front after seven minutes. They start celebrating, thinking they're, they're going to win the title. And then in the final five minutes, Juventus score twice. I think Platini scores an incredible free kick. And all of a sudden, you know, the doubt kind of creeps in. They have to go to Pisa the, the next week where they win. And at that point, they're like, yeah, okay, mentally we're strong enough to do this. We can go and do it. Um, but if you watch any of the footage from that era and see the Stadio Olimpico, mm. it is... With no roof. With no roof, sense. and it is just a sea of orange and yellow. It's that, that Pisa game, it was a 3-1 victory, and a lot of, I think, Roma, kind of historic Roma fans will point to that as, as the day when they felt, we've got this, and, and Falcao scores a, a famous goal and then rolls one sleeve up as if to say, come on, lads, up and at them. Kind of Matsola style, if you like. Di Bartolome scored that day as well. And as May rolls round, Roma mathematically sealed the title on the 8th of May with a 1-1 draw away at Genoa. But the funny thing is that the title's almost already won for them before that because there was a match on the 1st of May between Juve and Inter in the build-up to which a Juve fan threw a brick through the window of the Inter bus which injured one of their players, Giampiero Marini. And the game was subsequently awarded 2-0 to Inter, Juve being Roma's main rivals. That pretty much effectively handed them the title. So in terms of you know late drama and winning the Scudetto, it, it didn't quite happen. The scenes in Genoa are extraordinary because essentially 
the yellow and red side of Rome, which is most of Rome, let's not be around the bush there, just leaves the city, follows the, the team to Genoa. And you can see the final kind of five minutes, all of the fans are, are on the sidelines, ready to invade the pitch. And um, the kind of flash interviewer, is it Gag- Gagliazzi, oh, yeah. is, is trying to get to lead home and can't get to him. And he's getting really frustrated and impatient with these fans who are just kind of putting scarves around Liedholm's uh, neck and putting a, tying a flag as though it's a cape. And Liedholm just kind of bats him off um, as he's like insulting these fans. And Liedholm's like, it's for them, it's for them. It's just amazing. Galeazzi, a re- re- recurrent problem in in those years and the ones to come. Wild celebrations in the capital, the first title since 41-42. And then that's followed by the... Now, this is really bizarre. Can you explain why, following the title win, they were then playing in the Coppa Italia quarterfinals in June against Juventus? How were they having the Coppa Italia quarterfinals in June? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the... um, When they, for example, reached the European Cup final uh, the following year, which we'll get to... Um, again, have to play, I think, two rounds of the Coppa Italia after that. Coppa Italia goes way into June. I imagine in this circumstance, it's maybe because the season starts late after the World Cup or Possibly. something like that, but it happens again the following year. So, Yeah, I mean, Coppa Italia in June is one thing, but the quarterfinals still? Mm. Anyway, Roma Campioni then, and the following season was even more dramatic. In the league, they finished second, but the story of the campaign was all about Europe, really the European Cup, the final of which was going to be in Roma's own stadium, the Olimpico, and they managed to get there. But the campaign is, in many ways, anything but glorious. It really was a different era back then because you didn't have the coverage we have today. Foreign teams felt really, really foreign. And so there's there's two competing narratives here. There's the Roman narrative where, you know, we managed to get there, reach the final in our own stadium. They've never played the European Cup before. That's that's another thing that I think Gab kind of they, alluded to. They don't won the league once before. Yeah, it's not like Champions League where four teams get in it. Yeah. This was, and they, they, they felt it was their destiny because it's like the one year we're in it and the final's in Rome. And they get there and what had happened, and you know, I think there's Liverpool fans have written books about this, what often kind of got ignored was back then it was kind of like everything went and there were attacks on on Liverpool fans sort of throughout the day before and and and, and afterwards the city just completely lost its collective mind you know and this is a city too where i think even to this day a lot of the cops are either depending on their political stripe they're either Lazio fans or lot of Roma fans among them and they just completely lost it and it was a pretty horrible horrible night which some people have I've later said, you know, tied it in to, because of course other people can't distinguish between one team and another team, tied it into events that would lead to Heisel a year, a year later. Il grande mercoledì è dunque arrivato, si disputa la finalissima di Coppa dei Campioni tra la Roma e il Liverpool. They've not conceded, I think, a single goal at home in their entire European campaign to this point, but about five minutes in, Phil Neal scores for, for Liverpool after a bizarre mix-up which sees the ball bounce off Tancredi's head which again Roma fans think you know should never have stood Whelan's up on the far side and Rush almost got in there but it might come for Phil Neal and it's given Liverpool are in the lead is it Ronnie Whelan yeah he like sort of charges Tancredi the ball falls Tancredi's got like Whelan's studs imprinted in his thigh and there was a lot of speculation in the three weeks before the game that the referee was Swedish, like Liedholm. Mm. And they felt that the referee was trying to kind of overcompensate. It's like, I'm not going to give them any kind of favours. And yeah, Neil scores. Pruzzo equalises. In the second half, there's a couple of chances that Roma don't take. And it goes to penalties, James. And it goes to penalties, Gav. still leans their way because Steve Nichol, my ESPN colleague, <laughs> lines up to take the penalty kick and he misses. And Steve Nichol make it 1-0 for Liverpool. Five penalties for each side, remember? Oh, bad news. Up next for Roma is Di Bartolome, who puts his away. Obviously. And then, unfortunately, the ones who missed for Roma... 
Conti, Graziani. Errore. 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 E il Liverpool conquista la sua quarta Coppa dei Campioni. Where was Falcao? Well, that's the... <laughs> this became one of the stories of that, among all the recriminations afterwards, the idea that Falcao had refused to take a penalty. There were stories even that the captain, Di Bartolome, and Falcao had come to blows in the dressing room afterwards, but people point out that Falcao wasn't a penalty taker no. for Roma. And also Di Bartolome, as we would tragically find out, was also somebody who, I mean, before everything that happened later... You know, he's also somebody who famously brought a gun onto the team bus and thought it was it was funny. So the remarkable thing about that, for all the rec- recriminations, you know, Roma's four penalty takers, Di Bartolomeo and, and Ubaldo Righetti, the center back, both mm-hmm. scored. The ones who missed it were Bruno Conti, arguably Roma's most talented player, and Ciccio Graziani, perhaps less talented, but, you know, still a center forward. Right. So, you know, it's not like one of those weirdo situations where, you you know, you've got Tancredi taking penalties. Yeah, but by that point, they had to deal with Grobola's wobbly knees, which I don't think he did for the first two kicks. No, the spaghetti legs. The spaghetti legs. But, yeah, Falcao's a no-show, and he kind of claims that he had a knee injury, I think, against Inter, and he'd been playing with sort of painkilling injections. And after 120 minutes, they'd walk off and he just, he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't, right. couldn't, felt like he couldn't walk, certainly felt like he couldn't kick with the kind of power that he felt he needed. But yeah, a lot of his teammates, Graziani included, is like, you know, part of being a, a champion is that you take responsibility. And in that moment, he, he wasn't there. Falcao, who'd become the eighth king of Rome in popular parlance for his success with the Giallorossi. Abdicates. <laughs> yeah, abdicates. And a lot of people, I think, felt that that kind of marked the end of his reign as as as, as the ruler of that club. And many things were to change. You had Sven-Jörn Eriksson, whose Benfica side had put Roma out of the European Cup the previous season, and who was watching in the stands that day at the Olympico, ready to take over from the Baron Nils Liedholm. Yeah, and to go back to what I said before about how f- different football was back then, one of the most interesting things I read before Roma played Liverpool in the uh, semi-final last year was uh, Peter Moore, who's the Liverpool chairman or chief executive or whatever. He tweeted out ah, the match report compiled by Liverpool scout ahead of that final. It looks like it's written on like a dot matrix printer or something. This guy back then, he'd written a report based on two Roma games. He'd made a trip to Italy. And it's funny because he's like, you know, oh, like Dario Bonetti, who fans in Scotland might remember. Oh, he's clearly their strongest player. And like his his reading of what Roma were like, based on the two games that he saw, mm. was just all over the place. You know, to the point that whatever information he gleaned, even the stuff with the penalty kicks too, he ends up saying like, it's probably best if, if Bruce stands still and, you know, doesn't move at all. Uh, un- until the the very last, well, what he would base that on? Because he didn't see Roma taking penalties. Nobody knows. But it's just a reminder that you know, here's the guy who's a chief scout, you know, trusted advisor to was it was it Joe Fagan who was the manager at the time? Yeah. Or, comes back with his basically useless nonsense, and you can't blame him because there was no Y scout, there's no YouTube, there's there's no you know, you barely had televisions back then. And it's just funny when we talk about how people prepare for games back then and these great managers. Do you think he actually went to Italy or did he just sit at home and write some expense for me? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this is the other thing <laughs> that... The Manchester airport. Liverpool had gone to Tel Aviv to prepare for this. That's right, yeah. Um, I think there's some quite famous stories about that. But you look at that Liverpool side, they won... In the last 12 years, they won eight league titles, four league cups. They'd won the European Cup three times, UEFA wow. Cup twice, the FA Cup once, the European Super Cup once. I think they'd won like every game away from home leading up to the final, something stupid like that. I mean, they oozed so much confidence going in there that they really probably didn't even need this guy scouting report. Campionato di calcio italiano. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. We should talk about the semi-final now. Well, this marked the end of an era. I think another nail in, in, in the coffin of, of that side was were the allegations that, that, that came out and were subsequently admitted to by the son of the owner, Ricardo Viola. Uh, so this is the semi-final then. They're taking on Dundee United, who beat them 2-0 in Scotland for the second leg at the Stadio Olimpico and Roma desperate to get through to this final of destiny in their own stadium uh, managed to come out 3-0 winners 
Bruzzo gets a brace and then Di Bartolome uh, scores a penalty, the crucial penalty as it turns out, and uh, through they go. However, stories emerge about the referee, Michel Vautreau, who is sent to a restaurant ahead of this second leg of the semi-final where he receives a phone call which is code for the fact these are the allegations that later emerges, as I say, that w- that he was to be paid £50,000 for uh, waving the Jalorosti through. Should we tell our younger listeners that when we say he receives a phone call at the restaurant, it means that somebody telephoned the restaurant on something called a landline because he didn't have his mobile phone with him at the time and then he left the room because that, that's <laughs> and went to answer said call. So the people who are at the table don't actually know right. what was said. And he gets a call from this guy, Paolo. And for years to come, there'd be a lot of speculation about who this Paolo is. Brings a lot of scrutiny on referee at the time, Paolo Casadine. And I think... Can you think of another referee whose name is Paolo? <laughs> Paolo Bergamo. Paolo Bergamo. Who? Nah, he denies it. Well, I mean, Ian Herbert yeah. uh, of the Daily Mail wrote a story about this before last year's semi-final between Roma and Liverpool about this. And he says that Sports Mills understands that Landini, who is basically this go-between... Spartaco. Spartaco. Spartaco Landini. <laughs> he, um, he admitted in a covertly recorded interview in 2012 mm. that the so-called Vatro bribe was a scam organized between him and another football executive designed to procure money from the unsuspecting Viola. So they took the money from Viola, but then never gave it to the referee. And in fact, Roma would say in their defense that when you look at the game, even though, yes, they were given a penalty, which put them through. It was actually a fair call. There was nothing untoward also, in that James, game. Also, James, they Roma had two goals disallowed in that game. Right, and, their opening goal was and disallowed. And Maldera was, shown a yellow card and was suspended for the for the final. Well, um, so th- they feel that, you know, they took some hits. Yes, we tried to bribe the ref, but it didn't work. <laughs> so we're innocent. They were suspended from European football for a season by UEFA, but then that was later overturned in favour of a fine, and Dino Viola was banned from official UEFA activities for four years, which I'm sure must have stung. The thing is, I mean, there's there's been kind of stories one way or the other, but Ricardo Viola, his son, I think uh, it was actually in 2018, wasn't it, that he... It was a media set. That he gives like this interview where he says, yeah, we did that. Yeah, it's all true. But and then was I like, no, no, <laughs> what was I saying? No. What I don't get about this, too, um, is... If Ian Herbert's story is correct with the covert interview, it's entirely possible that Ricardo Viola thought his dad was bribing the referee, but then it never actually happened. Or maybe even he says, well, I don't want to make my memory of my dad seem stupid, that he'd be ripped off by somebody named Spartaco. So, you know, I'll say that, yeah, we did do it, but do you know what I mean? Like, the, the amazing thing past, is, yeah. like, is that the other the the follow up to this is that the tape interview was undertaken by an Italian referee, Paolo Bergamo, who wanted to prove that he was not the mysterious middleman Paolo. Landini basically admits on a covertly recorded wiretap right, that, okay. that um the bribe was a scam. To oh, get and the money person from who's Viola. talking to him is but apparently the person who who recorded him saying that right. was Paolo Bergamo to basically prove that I'm not the Paolo who called the restaurant, you know? As if. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from wiretaps at this stage. Of yeah. Just juncture right. of his career. But the, the, the one other thing, again... Or well, maybe he got really well sort of versed in them, Gab. I don't know, you know? Um, the, the other thing that I want to emphasize, um, I go back to this about how different it was back then, because I thought this was just simply grotesque. So Dundee United had won the Scottish title the year before, and it was a really big deal, because mm. obviously everybody knows it's Celtic and Rangers, and back then Aberdeen right. were managed by some guy named Sir Alex Ferguson. And they were not sure semi-finals of the UEFA Cup at the same time, I think. Yeah, we're, we're, you, know, you had all these really big teams, and little Dundee United go and win it, and their manager was a guy named Jim McLean, who would also been an assistant to, to, to Jock Steen with the Scotland team. And, he made a joke sort of after the first leg about oh, yeah. how we're all on steroids from the high of having been with a Scotland team or something like that. He even used it as a metaphor, right? But he was, he's obviously joking and he's speaking metaphorically. But of course, with, you know, the real high-end translations that you had back then, the story became reported in Italy, like, you know, Jim McLean admits that his team are all on performance-enhancing drugs. Mm. No relation to John McLean. Yeah, which... You know, or or James McLean, who spells his name differently. Um, so it created kind of this atmosphere of like, poor little Roma, how are they going to deal with all these sort of, you know, drug-addled Scots? 
right? And some people, because Viola remains a very popular figure in Rome, despite many things, say that, well, he had no choice but to receive assurances from the referee because they were all on drugs. And, and that was part of the absolutely ludicrous defense that, that, that came out. Walter Smith was Jim McLean's assistant. Hmm. And again, in the Grey in, in Herbert piece, he says, he kind of just holds his hand up and says, Rome were an excellent side. And the regret was that after going 2-0 up, we had a good chance of getting to the final, but didn't take it. We just didn't play as well as we normally did in Rome that night. Liverpool showed the greater experience to deal with the journey in a difficult environment. So, 30th of May 1984, and as I say, it was very much the end of the of an era for the Giallorossi, Falcao, lead home heads off to Milan. He takes Di Bartolome with him. It should all have been so different in, in the Roma vision. Other side of the city, the night of the final, right. at Circo Massimo, yeah. Antonello Venditti is playing a concert, which is essentially supposed to be a kind of celebration for Roma winning right. the Right, now European this is the Venditti who produced one of the great football anthems in commemoration of the Scudetto win the previous season, Grazie Roma. And was now ready to celebrate, no doubt, with another classic track, but it didn't happen. Today on Golazzo, we journey back to the early 80s and the story of a Roma side who touched the sky and paid the price, and probably the referee too. The side that put the Giallo in Giallorossi in this Golazzo. It's the summer of 1982. James Hornkhouse was just back from the nursery, right? No, I'm I'm still a tadpole. Are you not even in 1982? No. Christ, I'm by. Gab, you're still in Frankfurt, are you? I am, yes. All right, lovely. The Italian national side are back from the World Cup, as we mentioned on a recent Golazzo. They are world champions, and they're about to see... They all play for Juventus. (laughs) They all play for Juventus. Serie A, for all Juve's might... Might which had been increased over the summer by the additions of Zibi Boniek and Michel Platini. Right. Serie A was about to see some unlikely winners of their own, a Roma side. It's interesting when you look back at that that season, following the World Cup and the boom, the enthusiasm around Calcio, the lineup on the starting grid for, for Serie A, you have Trapattoni's Juve, who've basically won every single title going for for the last five years. You've got Inter, who are massive and then even the newly promoted sides Pisa not so much but Verona who within a season or two are going to become title contenders and Sampdoria who get promoted that season 82-83 and what a side they'd put together yeah I mean they signed Trevor Francis yep Liam Brady who had to make way for Platini at uh, Juventus right they've got Bobby Mancini 18-year-old Roberto Mancini. The incredible thing, James, is that everyone looks at Juventus and on paper they're the strongest team that has ever been, you know, particularly in the in the warm glow of, of winning the World Cup. They'd also won the Serie A title the two previous years as well. Mm. And this Samp side that comes up beats them yeah. on the opening day of the season. This Samp side beats them. The following week they beat Inter with a brace from Trevor Francis. And then who do they beat in the third week? Roma. Roma. Yeah, incredible start by Sampdoria, but it, it's Roma we're here to talk about. And that Roma team, now, only a few years before, they'd been taken over by Dino Viola, and his impact had been pretty immediate in terms of making them a, a struggling club into real contenders. And this is the thing, James, because two years before the title win, Roma are contending for the Scudetto with Juventus. And, what, third game? Before the end of the season, Juventus and Roma play in Turin. It's the top of the table clash. There's a point between them. If Roma win it, they leapfrog them. They maybe win the, the league for the first time since 42. It's nil-nil. And what happens towards the end? Bruno Conti puts in a cross. There's uh, Ramon Turone. Gets on the end of it. But it looks like a legit goal. 
for the whistleblowers. And who's blowing the whistle? Paolo Bergamo, who I think, did we talk about in the Calciopoli scandal? Anyway, might. we'll flash yeah. forward to that again at a later date. We'll, we'll talk Bergamo, about him in, in one this. One of the two heads of referees in the right. A man who, whose name is also linked to the Dundee United affair. Mm. But we'll come on to that later on. Yes, the Turone goal, which to this day is still one of the most talked about incidents in Roma's long battle with the the clubs up north, the winds from the north. Giampiero Boniperti, the president of Juventus, um, obviously hears, listens to all the noise that Roma make about this, particularly Dino Viola afterwards. And Viola, a few days later, receives a package from Turin. It's from Boniperti, and inside there is a ruler with which he can measure the offside because he's been banging on about it. Savage. So Roma have already managed to establish themselves as credible rivals to Juve. They've also picked up trophies pretty much every season, not the Scudetto, but Coppa Italia's and and the like. And by 82-83, Dino Viola has managed to, while battling Juve, put together one of the great Giallorossi sides, starting with the manager. Yeah, Niels Liedholm, who is one of those sort of fascinating characters you get popping up in Italy, you know, and not just in Italy, but elsewhere, you know, those guys who move to a country as players and then they just kind of never leave and they sort of half maintain their own culture and background and then half adopt that of their adopted country. Now, Niels Liedholm had come to Italy, I believe, in the early 50s or late 40s and played for this incredible Milan side who won the title twice. Grenoli, no? The Grenoli side, which comes from, it was Gunnar Gren, uh, Gunnar Nordahl, who is the second highest goal scorer in the history of Serie A, and, you know, after Slatan, of course, the greatest ever <laughs> Swedish player, and Niels Liedholm, who was sort of the, the I guess, sort of the, the creative mind uh, in, in, in the midfield. And uh, well, He never misplaced a pass until one time, and when he did, Sansir hadn't seen it happen in so long that legend has it that they all stood up and applauded. And he was sort of, by the standards of time football back then, he was sort of very calm, very laid back, um, you know, always kind of spoke slowly and carefully. And it was exactly what Roma needed because they, they found him to be sort of this, this this odd foreign guy. And, you know, by this stage, he would have been in his in his 60s, I, I would assume. The Baron, they the, called him. Yeah. The weird thing about him as well was that I mean, he'd been the part of that great Milan lineup. And as a manager in this period, he was kind of commuting between Rome and Milan, doing one season with the Giallorossi and then back with the Rossoneri and then back to the Giallorossi again. Yeah, I mean, he was famous for kind of uh, launching young players as well. I think uh, Milan, he was the guy who gave Franco Baresi his, his debut. He was in charge of Milan when they won the Scudetto della Stella. And that was a big vindication for him because at that point, people just thought of him as this, this guy who would come in. He was good at kind of low to mid-ranking clubs and good for launching young players, but never won anything. Also because Liedholm played a style of football that was, I'd say, unusual Italy, that he was a big advocate for zonal marking, passing football and that sort of thing. And uh, in terms of temperament and style of management, Gab will probably know more about this than, than I do because he spent more time with him, but Carlo Ancelotti, who would obviously play on the lead home, has a lot of lead homes character traits in terms of how man manages, manages certain situations. I think there's a lot of... I remember the first big interview I did as a journalist when I came back to England was to do Ancelotti at Chelsea. And I remember he took particular enjoyment out of talking about Nils Liedholm. It's, yeah. it, it, it is funny that sort of the two big influences on Ancelotti's career as a manager are the two polar opposites, Nils Liedholm and Enrico uh, Sacchi. In, in terms of of man management style because, you know, I sort of lay back. I'm everybody's friend. I'm going to make sure everybody likes me. I'll, I'll always kind of, you know, stay calm. And and then players really respond to that. And, you know, you were talking about this this great team that they put together. Ancelotti, he'd come up at, at, at Parma. He'd moved to Roma. And he had sort of next superstar painted all over him. And he would have been part of the Italy team that won the 82 World Cup, no question about it, if not for his bad knees. He returned, I think, in, in October. Um, yeah, he misses uh, the first seven games or yeah. something. And immediately that has an effect on a team. But to give you an idea, when you ask Ancelotti about it, he also minimizes. It's like, yeah, I think I doubtly had an effect. But the fact that I was playing with Paolo Roberto Falcao so also th- made things midfield. a lot easier. So let's just have a... Sorry, James. Well, there's a story which kind of links all this together, uh-huh. which is... Ancelotti's knee blowouts happen in games where Roma La Magica score 
two of the best goals I think you will ever see. So there's one the season before they win the league title. They're playing Fiorentina at the Olimpico. And this ball comes in and you see Paolo Roberto Falcao back heel volley for Roberto Puzzo to head in. And then the year when they are champions and they're defending their title, they play against Juve at the Comunale. And you see the ball never hits the floor and the final touch is Puzzo's bicycle kick. And he dedicates the goal to Ancelotti, whose knee had blown out again in that game. And yeah, both of those goals, I sort of, I would say, would encapsulate some of the skill, some of the ability in this Roma side. Falcao's arrival, meanwhile, had seen one of the great Italian playmakers move back into a kind of more of a defensive role, Agostino Di Bartolomei, who has perhaps the biggest role of anyone in this team. I would say the most influential captain, arguably of all time. I mean, Totti has his own claim to that, but Di Bartolomei, again, every Roma side that won the league title had a captain or a leading figure in it from the city. Um, and Can you tell us who the one from the 1942 team was? Amadeo Amade. There you go. But you talk about lead home, basically taking this guy who was a sort of deep-lying midfield playmaker, had a great range of passing, um, had this uh, sassata, you know, this sort of really talk about powerful shots. We talked about Adriano last week. Um, Di Bartolomeo was that was one of his key attributes as well. But he goes and plays at the back, and again, it's all about this kind of passing football that Liedholm wants to start. And Liedholm surrounds him with. He says he's got the quickest defense in Italy because you need one when you've got Di Bartolomeo back there. Really, really ponderously slow. <laughs> <laughs> but he signs uh, the Czar. Pietro Virkiwad. Um Virkiwad, I think, along with Mancini and someone else, one of like a handful of players to won the league with two clubs that are not Juventus, Inter or Milan. He right. would win it with Juventus later on, Virkiwad, but that's by the way. Maldera as well, uh-huh. for, and S- Sabino Nella. Yep. Um, yeah, super quick fullbacks. Also, also, and you've got the keeper, Tancredi, but not that Tancredi. <laughs> All these great names playing in that splendid floppy-collared Barilla shirt and of course legendary names there Conte we briefly touched on who'd had that incredible World Cup but the, the man whose whose image is really forever stamped on this side not just this season but also the subsequent one and then for events that come later is Agor Agostino Di Bartolomeo the season begins with the two promoted sides flying out the blocks we talked about Sampdoria Verona were as well what do you remember that, of that uh, of that campionato well, in addition, as you say, when we first started seeing like how good Verona could be and, and Sampdoria with the youngsters, and also the fact that Turone, who you mentioned, who had been sort of the symbol of Roma getting screwed out of titles in the mind of Roma fans, he was sold in, uh, back then you had an extra transfer window, I think in, in October. And in some ways, getting rid of him was kind of like getting rid of, a bunch of people in football are very superstitious of exercising your your, your, your bad luck charm. But the other interesting thing, and just which I thought just sort of serves as a reminder of, you know, how kind of the Overton window has shifted, and we kind of take it for granted that teams go and win titles with 80, 90 points, you know, not just in Italy. Um, it was remarkable about that. Roma won the title that, that season, and, and I'd forgotten this. I'm looking at this now. It was a 30-game season, and if it had been three points for a win, as it is now, and admittedly it is a shorter season, they would have had... 59 points from 30 games if it had been three points. So that's, that's less than two points a game. Today you have teams that get two points a game that finish sixth, and it's pretty routine. To me, that's absolutely incredible how we've lost that. We're so used to now sort of dominating teams, going out there and, and blowing everybody away. And, I th- and to me, that's kind of food for thought. The other interesting thing is that season, Roma... Um, they won 13 of 15 games at home. Away from home, they won three of 15 games. <laughs> really? They, they, they drew two-thirds of their games away from home. But that was the idea. It's like, win your home games, draw away from home, and you'll be fine. Uh, and that's completely, completely gone out the window in today's football. Also, you talk about home advantage, let's say. In this season, you've got to talk about the Commandos Ultras Curva Sud, no? The, the cooks who the choreographies that they put on, the atmosphere that they created. I think it was maybe the year after where they did that massive Tiamo. 
I love you kind of choreography. Just amazing to see the Olympico. Particularly, there was a game towards the end of the season where they play against Juve. Falcao puts them in front after seven minutes. They start celebrating. They're, they're going to win the title. And then in the final five minutes, Juventus score twice. I think Platini scores an incredible free kick. And all of a sudden, you know, the doubt kind of creeps in. They have to go to Pisa the, the next week where they win. And at that point, they're like, yeah, okay. Mentally, we're strong enough to do this. We can go and do it. Um, but if you watch any of the footage from that era and see the Estadio Olimpico, mm. it is... With no roof. With no roof. Things. And it is just a sea of orange and yellow. It's, that that Pisa game, it was a 3-1 victory. And a lot of, I think, Roma, kind of historic Roma fans will point to that as, as the day when they felt, we've got this. And, and Falcao scores a, a famous goal and then rolls one sleeve up as if to say, come on, lads. Up and at him, kind of Matsola style, if you like. Di Bartolome scored that day as well. And as May rolls round, Roma mathematically sealed the title on the 8th of May with a 1 1 draw away at Genoa. But the funny thing is that the title's almost already won for them before that because there was a match on the 1st of May between Juve and Inter in the build up to which a Juve fan threw a brick through the window of the Inter bus, which injured one of their players, Giampiero Marini. And the game was subsequently awarded 2-0 to Inter, Juve being Roma's main rivals. That pretty much effectively handed them the title. So in terms of you know late drama and winning the Scudetto, it, it, it didn't quite happen. The scenes in Genoa are extraordinary because essentially the yellow and red side of Rome, which is most of Rome, let's not be around the bush there, just leaves the city, follows the, the team to Genoa. And you can see the final kind of five minutes. All of the fans are, are on the sidelines, ready to invade the pitch. And... Um, the kind of flash interviewer is it Gale- Gale- Galeazzi, oh, yeah. is, is trying to get to lead home and can't get to him and he's getting really frustrated and impatient with these fans who are just kind of putting scarves around Lidom's uh, neck and putting a f- tying a flag as though it's a cape and Lidom just kind of bats him off um, as he's like insulting these fans and Lidom's like it's for them it's for them amazing Galeazzi a re- re- recurrent problem in, in those years and the ones to come wild celebrations in the capital the first title since 41-42 and then that's followed by the now this is really bizarre can you explain why following the title win they were then playing in the Coppa Italia quarterfinals in June against Juventus how are they having the Coppa Italia quarterfinals in June well yeah I mean it, this is the um, when they, for example, reached the European Cup final uh, the following year, which we'll get to, um, again, have to play, I think, two rounds of the Coppa Italia after that. Coppa Italia goes way into June. I imagine in this circumstance, it's maybe because the season starts late after the World Cup or Possibly. something like that, but it happens again the following year. So, Yeah, I mean, Coppa Italia in June is one thing, but the quarterfinals still? Mm. Anyway, Roma Campioni then, and the following season was even more dramatic. In the league, they finished second. But the story of the campaign was all about Europe, really the European Cup, the final of which was going to be in Roma's own stadium, the Olimpico. And they managed to get there. But the campaign is in many ways anything but glorious. It really was a different era back then because you didn't have the coverage we have today. Foreign teams felt really, really foreign. And so there's there's two competing narratives here. There's the Roman narrative where... You know, we managed to get there, reach the final in our own stadium. They've never played the European Cup before. That's that's another thing that I think as Gab kind of they, alluded to. They don't won the league once before. Yeah, it's not like Champions League where four teams get in it. Yeah. This was, and they they they, they felt it was their destiny because it's like the one year we're in it and the finals in Rome. And they get there, and what had happened, and you know, I think there's Liverpool fans have written books about this. What often kind of got ignored was back then it was kind of like everything went and. There were attacks on on Liverpool fans sort of throughout the day before and and and, and afterwards. The city just completely lost its collective mind. You know, and this is a city too where I think even to this day, a lot of the cops are either depending on their political stripe, they're either Lazio fans or lot of Roma fans among them, and they just completely lost it. And it was a pretty horrible, horrible night, which some people have I've later said, you know, tied it in to, because of course other people can't distinguish between one team and another team, tied it into events that would lead to Heisel a year, a year later. 
il grande mercoledì è dunque arrivato si disputa la finalissima di Coppa dei Campioni tra la Roma e il Liverpool they've not conceded I think a single goal at home in their entire European campaign to this point but about five minutes in Phil Neal scores for, for Liverpool after a bizarre mix-up which sees the ball bounce off Tancredi's head again Roma fans think you know, should never have stood Whelan's up on the far side and Rush almost got in there but it might come for Phil Neal and it's given Liverpool are in the lead is it Ronnie Whelan yeah he like sort of charges Tancredi the ball falls Tancredi's got like Whelan's studs imprinted in his thigh and there was a lot of speculation in the three weeks before the game that the referee was Swedish like lead home mm. and they felt that the referee was trying to kind of overcompensate it's like I'm not going to give them any kind of favours and yeah Neil scores Bruzzo equalises in the second half there's a couple of chances that Roma don't take and it goes to penalties, James. And it goes to penalties, Gareth. And still leans their way because Steve Nichol, my ESPN colleague, <laughs> lines up to take the penalty kick and he misses. And Steve Nichol make it 1-0 for Liverpool. Five penalties for each side, remember? Oh, bad news. Up next for Roma is Di Bartolomei, who puts his away. Obviously. And then, unfortunately, the ones who missed for Roma were... Conti. Graziani. Errore. 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 E il Liverpool conquista la sua quarta Coppa dei Campioni. Where was Falcao? Well, that's the. <laughs> this became one of the stories of that, among all the recriminations afterwards, the idea that Falcao had refused to take a penalty. There were stories even that. The captain, Di Bartolomei, and Falcao had come to blows in the dressing room afterwards, but people point out that Falcao wasn't a penalty taker no. for Roma. And also Di Bartolomei, as we would tragically find out, was also somebody who, I mean, before everything that happened later, you know, he was also somebody who famously brought a gun onto the team bus and thought it was, it was funny. So the remarkable thing about that, for all the rec- recriminations... You know, Roma's four penalty takers, Di Bartolomeo and, and Ubaldo Righetti, the centre-back, both mm-hmm. scored. The ones who missed it were Bruno Conti, arguably Roma's most talented player, and Ciccio Graziani, perhaps less talented, but, you know, still a centre-forward. Right. So, you know, it's not like one of those weirdo situations where, you you know, you've got Tancredi taking penalties. Yeah, but by that point, they had to deal with Grobola's wobbly knees, which I don't think he did for the first two kicks. No, the spaghetti legs. The spaghetti legs. But, yeah, Falcao's a no-show, and he kind of claims that he had a knee injury, I think, against Inter, and he'd been playing with sort of pain-killing injections, and after 120 minutes, they'd walk off, <laughs> and he just he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't, right. couldn't, felt like he couldn't walk, certainly felt like he couldn't kick with the kind of power that he felt he needed. But, yeah, a lot of his teammates, Graziani included, so, like, you know, part of being a... A champion is that you take responsibility and in that moment he he wasn't there. Falcao, who'd become the eighth king of Rome in popular parlance for his success with the Giallorossi. Abdicates. <laughs> yeah, abdicates. And a lot of people, I think, felt that that kind of marked the end of his reign as, 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 as the ruler of that club. And many things were to change. You had Sven-Jorn Eriksson, whose Benfica side had put Roma out of the European Cup the previous season, and who was watching in the stands that day at the Olympico, ready to take over from the Baron Nils lead home. Yeah, and to go back what I said before about how f- different football was back then, one of the most interesting things I read before Roma played Liverpool in the uh, semi-final last year was uh, Peter Moore, who's the Liverpool chairman or chief executive or whatever. He tweeted out ah, the match report compiled by Liverpool Scout ahead of that final. It looks like it's written on like a dot matrix printer or something. This guy back then, he'd written a report based on two Roma games. He'd made a trip to Italy. And it's funny because he's like, you know, oh, like Dario Bonetti, who fans in Scotland might remember. Oh, he's clearly their strongest player. And like his his reading of what Roma were like, based on the two games that he saw, mm. was just all over the place. You know, to the point that whatever information he gleaned, even the stuff with the penalty kicks too, he ends up saying like, it's probably best if, if Bruce stands still and, you know, doesn't move at all 
uh, un- until the, the very last. Well, what he would base that on, because he didn't see Roma taking penalties, nobody knows. But it's just a reminder that, you know, here's the guy who's a chief scout, you know, trusted advisor to, was it was it Joe Fagan who was the manager at the time? Yeah. Or, comes back with this basically useless nonsense. And you can't blame him because there was no Y scout, there's no YouTube, there's, there's no, you know, you barely had televisions back then. And it's just funny when we talk about how people prepare for games back then and these great managers. Do you think he actually went to Italy or did he just sit at home and write some expense for me? <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, this is the other thing <laughs> that... The Manchester airport. Liverpool had gone to Tel Aviv to prepare for this. That's right, yeah. Um, I think there's some quite famous stories about that. But you look at that Liverpool side, they won... In the last 12 years, they won eight league titles, four league cups. They'd won the European Cup three times, UEFA wow. Cup twice, the FA Cup once, the European Super Cup once. I think they'd won like every game away from home leading up to the final, something stupid like that. I mean, they oozed so much confidence going in there that... Mm. They really probably didn't even need this guy scouting report. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. We should talk about the semi-final now. Well, this marked the end of an era. I think another nail in, in, in the coffin of, of that side was were the allegations that, that, that came out and were subsequently admitted to by the son of the owner, Riccardo Viola. Uh, so this is the semi-final then. They're taking on Dundee United, who beat them 2-0 in Scotland for the second leg at the Stadio Olimpico. And Roma, desperate to get through to this final of destiny in their own stadium, uh, managed to come out 3-0 winners. Bruzzo gets a brace, and then Di Bartolome uh, scores a penalty, the crucial penalty, as it turns out, and uh, through they go. However, stories emerge about the referee, Michel Vautro, who is sent to a restaurant ahead of this second leg of the semi-final where he receives a phone call, which is code for the fact... These are the allegations that later emerges, as I say, that w- that he was to be paid £50,000 for uh, waving the Jalorosti through. Should we tell our younger listeners that when we say he receives a phone call at the restaurant, it means that somebody telephoned the restaurant, something called a landline, because he didn't have his mobile phone with him at the time and then he left the room because that, that's and went to answer said call so the people who are at the table don't actually know right. what was said and he gets a call from this guy paolo and for years to come there'd be a lot of speculation about who this paolo is brings a lot of scrutiny on referee at the time paolo casadine and i think, you think of another referee's <laughs> name is paolo paolo bergamo paolo bergamo who now he denies it well i mean ian herbert yeah. uh the daily mail wrote a story about this before last year's semi-final between rome and liverpool about this and he says that sports mills understands that landini who is basically this go-between spartaco 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 landini <laughs> He, um, he admitted in a covertly recorded interview in 2012 that the so-called Vatro bribe was a scam organized between him and another football executive desired to procure money from the unsuspecting Viola. So they took the money from Viola but then never gave it to the referee. And in fact, Roma would say in their defense that when you look at the game, even though, yes, they were given a penalty, which put them through, it was actually a fair call. There was nothing untoward also, in that James, game. They Roma had two goals disallowed in that game. Right, and, their opening goal was and disallowed. And Maldera was... Shona Yelikalum was suspended for the for the final. Well, um, so th- they feel that you know they took some hits. Yes, we tried to bribe the ref, but it didn't work. <laughs> so we're innocent. They were suspended from European football for a season by UEFA, but then that was later overturned in favour of a fine, and Dino Viola was banned from official UEFA activities for four years, which I'm sure must have stung. The thing is, I mean, the, there's there's been kind of stories one way or the other, but Ricardo Viola, his son. I think uh, it was actually in 2018, wasn't it? That he is on Mediaset. That he gives like this interview sport. where he says, "Yeah, we did that. Yeah, it's all true." But and then was I like, "No, no. <laughs> what was I saying? No." What I don't get about this too um, is if Ian Herbert's story is correct with the covert interview, it's entirely possible that Ricardo Viola thought his dad was bribing the referee, but then. It never actually happened. Or maybe even he says, well, I don't want to make my memory of my dad seem stupid that he'd be ripped off by somebody named Spartaco. So, you know, I'll say that, yeah, we did do it. But it, you, you know what I mean? Like, the, the amazing thing past, is, like, is that the other, the, the follow-up to this is that the tape interview was undertaken by an Italian referee, Paolo Bergamo, who wanted to prove that he was not the mysterious middleman Paolo. 
Landini basically admits on a covertly recorded wiretap right, that, okay. that um, the bribe was a scam. To oh, get and the money person from who's Viola. talking to him is... But apparently the person who who recorded him saying that right. was Paolo Bergamo to basically prove that I'm not the Paolo who called the restaurant. You know? As if. Yeah. I think Paolo Bergamo wants to stay away from wiretaps at this stage. Of yeah. Just right. juncture of his career. But the, the, the one other thing, again... Well, again, maybe he got really well sort of versed in them, Gab. I don't know, you know? Um... <laughs> The, the other thing that I want to emphasize, um, and I go back to this about how different it was back then, because I thought this was just simply grotesque. So Dundee United had won the Scottish title the year before, and it was a really big deal because mm. obviously everybody knows it's Celtic and Rangers, and back then Aberdeen right. were managed by some guy named Sir Alex Ferguson. And they were not sure what semifinals of the UEFA Cup at the same time, I think. Yeah, where, where, you, know, you had all these really big teams and little Dundee United go and win it, and their manager was a guy named Jim McLean, who would also been an assistant to, to, to Jock's team with the Scotland team. And he made a joke sort of after the first leg about oh, yeah. how we're all on steroids from the high of having been with a Scotland team or something like that. He even used it as a metaphor, right? But he was he's obviously joking and he's speaking metaphorically. But of course, with you know the real high-end translations that you had back then. The story became reported in Italy, like, you know, Jim McLean admits that his team are all on performance-enhancing drugs. Mm. No relation to John McLean. Yeah, um. which, you know, or, or James McLean, who spells <laughs> his name differently. Um, so it created kind of this atmosphere of, like, poor little Roma, how are they going to deal with all these sort of, you know, drug-addled Scots, right? And some people, because Viola remains a very popular f- figure in Rome, despite many things, say that, well, he had no choice but to receive assurances from the referee because they were all on drugs. And, and that was part of the absolutely ludicrous defense that, that, that came out. Walter Smith was Jim McLean's assistant. Huh. And again, in the gray in, in Herbert piece, he says, he kind of just holds his hand up and says, Romo were an excellent side. And the regret was that after going 2-0 up, we had a good chance of getting to the final, but didn't take it. We just didn't play as well as we normally did in Rome that night. Liverpool showed the greater experience to deal with the journey in a difficult environment. So, 30th of May 1984, and as I say, it was very much the end of the of an era for the Giallorossi. Falcao, lead home, heads off to Milan. He takes Di Bartolome with him. It should all have been so different in, in the Roma vision. Other side of the city, the night of the final, right. at Circo Massimo, yeah. Antonello Venditti is playing a concert, which is essentially supposed to be a kind of celebration for Roma winning right. the Now, European this is the Venditti who produced one of the great football anthems in commemoration of the Scudetto win the previous season, Grazie Roma. And was now ready to celebrate, no doubt, with another classic track, but it didn't happen. Ten years later, on the 30th of May 1994... Di Bartolome steps out onto his balcony on a, a sunny morning, puts his pistol against his heart and pulls the trigger. And there's been a lot said about how he ended up, the financial woes, his feeling of isolation from the game. But the fact that he chooses the 10-year anniversary of that defeat on penalties to Liverpool speaks volumes. Naturally, Antonello Venditti did a song commemorating Di Bartolome. You know, obviously, as I mentioned, this is a guy who, who'd had a lot of a lot of issues it just couldn't he just couldn't cope you know people talk about sort of the the transition professional athletes make when when they stop playing and this is a guy who who kind of lived it with with such intensity after he retired he, he tried his hand at different things and and i think he really struggled and, and some people said things didn't work out his charisma didn't perhaps translate the way it did when when, when he was a player People have said that he also had some financial difficulties precisely because of this. I, I don't know. But, you know, it was obviously a very, very, very jarring end to it. Right. And the people have also suggested that the uh, the 10-year anniversary was really just a coincidence. Well, the fact that he chooses the day, 10 years on, the 30th of May 1994, to end it all, I think can hardly be just chance. I think he felt uh, marginalised and isolated completely left adrift by the game which as Gab says he lived so intensely he I think was promised um, over and over again that he would have some role at 
Roma or another football club be a coaching role, those promises were never fulfilled. He wanted to set up a football school down in Salerno because I think he ended up his career at Salernitana. And, you know, getting that off the ground was was really problematic. You know, lots of spanners thrown in the works in that. Um, and there's a couple of really great things I think you should watch to, if you want to know more about this. There's, um, there's an actual documentary called Undici Metri, uh, which is about Di Bartolomei. But there's also another Paolo Sorrentino film, Luomo in Pio, which really explores that theme of, uh, as Gab was saying, someone who's transitioning from being a, not just a player, but a, a legend. I mean, Sorrentino's brilliant. That title, Luomo in Pio, is just such a brilliant turn of phrase because it, it means sort of the, the extra man. And you can read it in so many ways. You can obviously read it as the fact that, you know, he played as a sweeper, so he was the, the, the spare man. You can talk about how the extra lift he gave Roma, but it's also kind of like, you know, when, you know, you have something extra or, or additional in view that you don't need. Surplus. And he wasn't needed. Yeah, he mm. was surplus to requirements. Well, Roma in the early 80s, the best of times are very much the worst of times. We'll leave it there for this week's Golazzo with Antonello Venditti doing his... Before we get to Sven. Yeah, I think we'll save Sven for another day. And it allowed me to revisit Sven's incredible biography again. Right. Which talks about him playing tennis with Riccardo Viola. Riccardo saw himself as the better player than I was, but I always beat him. There you go, Sven. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Svenis and his tennis soon on Golazzo. But as we play out with Venditti and Tradimento e Perdono, dedicated to Di Bartolomei, and also another fallen Italian sporting hero, Marco Pantani, with many thanks to James Horncastle and Gabriele Marcotti, and you, listener, and from all of us here, Arrivederci. Ricordati di me, mio Sorriso sgomento, anche se vinto, non mi tormenta più. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>